Well, good morning. I greet you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and happy centennial to the First Baptist Church of Fairdale. It's a great joy to be here. I am incredibly encouraged to see what the Lord is doing right here in this church. And I have to tell you that uh, there's a certain occupational hazard uh, that befalls one who uh, holds the kind of position I hold. You end up going a lot of places not knowing whether it's going to be happy or sad. In all seriousness, especially when it comes to a formal occasion like an anniversary or some other kind of milestone, sometimes what you find is less than what should be there. And uh, what makes you particularly happy is to arrive in a place and see so much more than anyone would know to expect. And I, I have already seen that this morning. What a testimony to the sovereign providential power of God and the power of the gospel and the authenticity of, of ministry and Christ's promise to His church to see what the Lord is doing right here, right now in this generation, 100 years after the founding of the First Baptist Church of Fairdale. You can divide families many different ways. Uh, one way I divide families is between high-magnitude birthday families and low-magnitude birthday families. And uh, when someone from a high-magnitude birthday family marries someone from a low-magnitude birthday family, it can be problematic, especially when the person from the high-magnitude birthday family is the wife and the man uh, comes from the low birthday magnitude. I, I came from a low birthday magnitude family. Uh, I was one of several children, and uh, just on my mother's side, I had grandparents who were one of 11 and one of 13, respectively. By the time you filtered all that down, there was very little time to figure out how many cousins you had, much less whose birthday it might be. And so in my family, birthdays were of very low magnitude. If, if your birthday was remembered, uh, maybe there was a cake, maybe someone said happy birthday, and you got a pair of pajamas from grandmother, and then life went on. I did not realize there was another world out there. Little known to me was a world in which birthdays were magnificent events, Christmas distilled into one's unique day. And, uh, and, and it is a, a, a day. Uh, a, a, a day. I, I did not know there were families that marked half birthdays. I, I discovered this. I discovered early in marriage when uh, I had a responsibility and scheduled myself to be away on my wife's birthday, which I had not recognized was a national holiday. It, uh, it, it just did not strike me. If, if something had happened and and she were away on my birthday, uh, I, I wouldn't have taken much, much note of it, but in her love for me, she would have. So I come from a low-magnitude birthday family, but I have come to appreciate the ways of the high-magnitude birthday family. And, and, and the reason is this. There is something very special about a day not in terms of narcissism and mere celebration and gift-giving, just the recognition that the gift of life is so important. And every single human being made in God's image is so precious that a birthday really is important for a family to celebrate. And, and so important that, uh, that we continue to commemorate the birthdays of loved ones now gone to be with the Lord. Anniversaries are something of the same thing. 
And uh, in this, this is one of the, the words of advice I give to young husbands. Anniversaries are bigger than you think they are. Just a word of warning on the front end of this wonderful experience of marriage. Anniversaries are bigger than, than you think they are. Plan accordingly. A 100th birthday, or 100th anniversary is an incredible thing. I want you to ponder with me. Something has to explain why something begun 100 years ago continues. It's, it's not a fact of nature. The fact that there is a First Baptist Church of Fairdale thriving in the year 2016 has to be explained by something when you realize this church was 100 years old. It, it has to be explained when you realize that communities like Fairdale, like every community, will go through many different transformations. It, it requires some explanation when you realize that few churches thrive after a third generation. There are some churches that survive, but few churches thrive after a third generation. But here we are on a beautiful, spectacular Sunday morning. On a Lord's Day in the year 2016, thank you, God, for what has taken place over 100 years of ministry, going back to 1916 when Woodrow Wilson was president of the United States, and the United States was involved in that great conflagration known as World War I. No one who was a veteran of that war yet survives. The last reveille of that war was sounded long, long ago. You know, you actually can't explain the modern world, the world we experience, without understanding what took place back then a hundred years ago. And you really can't explain your own lives now without some reference to the fact that a hundred years ago, some faithful followers of the Lord Jesus Christ out of Beachmont Baptist Church established a church right here in Fairdale, Kentucky. And so it is to this day. But why? Human tenacity? Just a matter of perpetuating an organization? Sacrificial commitment? Well, any number of human explanations may be offered, but I want to submit to you the most important thing we can do this morning is turn for that answer to the Word of God, and I want to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. We're going to begin reading together in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. 
It's an amazing passage. I appreciate so much the fact that Josh Green is your pastor, and I appreciated what he said when we came to the sermon, and he said, this is the, this is the climactic moment of Christian worship. And, and it's because we really do believe that what's happening right now is, is not a man speaking, but God speaking from His Word. And, and if the preacher faithfully preaches the Word of God, it, it is the very voice of God that emerges. We hear it because this is God's inerrant and infallible in scripturated revelation. We're here because we do not have to come together to collaborate, to come up with something to believe and something to say. We are here because we are a people of the book, and unashamedly, unabashedly so. And, and we turn to Matthew chapter 16, and we realize that we are being invited into the most private of conversations that we would have no access to whatsoever, but for the fact that the Holy Spirit has given us this conversation between Jesus and his disciples. It is the Holy Spirit who inspired Matthew to write down this gospel in order that we would know what was said, that we would know that Jesus had taken his, his disciples into the region of Caesarea Philippi. Now, why would he have done that? that? That's not some kind of just extraneous word that is like a piece of scenery in a drama. Here we are being told something very significant. Jesus took his disciples out of Judea and out of Galilee into the region that had the, the most minimal Jewish influence. He, he was attracting crowds in Galilee. Just look back to Matthew chapter 13. The crowd was so large that Jesus, in order to teach, had to get into a boat and, and, and get that distance from shore so that he could be seen and heard. There are certain things that can be said in the presence of a massive crowd. There are other things that can only happen, other conversations that can only rightly take place in the intimacy of privacy. Jesus, in taking his disciples into the region of Caesarea Philippi, took them out of the glare of publicity, took them away from the possibility of any crowd. This is the most Roman dominant part of what we would call the Holy Land. It is where they were least likely to be known, least likely to attract a crowd, because Jesus wanted a private conversation with his disciples. Now, we need to pause for a moment to recognize something. I can remember as a little boy growing up in a church so much like this. I can remember sitting through Sunday school and vacation Bible school, and, 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 and when I was growing up, when, when you were a little boy, you, you didn't go to vacation Bible school. You went to every vacation Bible school. Uh, every church in the community, they staggered them so that you could go to four or five different vacation Bible schools. And I actually responded to the gospel, hearing the preaching of God's Word in vacation Bible school. It will always be absolutely precious to me. Sitting in all those Sunday school classes, I can remember thinking, what it must have been like to have been one of the disciples of Jesus, to have seen and heard Jesus in His earthly ministry. Much later, I realized something that we all must think about. We, who have the New Testament, know more than the disciples knew. It's an amazing, humbling realization. We know more than the disciples knew because they were watching the story of Jesus unfold. They were watching Jesus as He performed the miracles, as He, as he stared down the Pharisees. They were listening to Jesus as He taught we have the entirety of what the Holy Spirit has given us in the New Testament 
such that we can know what they were learning so progressively. There's no better illustration of that than Matthew chapter 16. As we see, it's a conversation between Jesus and his disciples. When Jesus has them in the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asks his disciples, saying, who do people say that the Son of Man is? It's a very awkward question. Jesus is asking his disciples, so what's the chatter? Who do they think I am? It had to be an awkward question to answer because the answers were also awkward. And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. that, That sounds a bit like nonsense. How could Jesus be confused with John the Baptist? Well, actually, that's fairly easy to understand. If you put this back in the context in the first century, there was no way to Google Jesus. Word of mouth was the only means of transmission, and all the way from Judea up to Galilee, that word of mouth could get quite garbled. It gets garbled in an elementary school class. It gets garbled in a neighborhood. It gets garbled in the lady Sunday school class. Just imagine how garbled it got from Judea to Galilee. People heard about John the Baptist calling for repentance and John the Baptist baptizing. And Jesus, when he was heard, sounded much like John the Baptist. Now, we know that Jesus was not John the Baptist, and we understand that John the Baptist was indeed the forerunner to prepare the way for Jesus to accomplish his messianic mission. But we do know that this represents perhaps a more natural confusion than we might have first thought. And and then others mention Old Testament prophets. Others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Now, did this mean that somehow there was speculation that, that Jews had somehow believed in reincarnation, and they believed that Elijah was back, or Jeremiah, after centuries, was back, or one of the prophets was back? The answer to that is no, the Jewish people did not believe in reincarnation. What they did believe was the promise that a prophet's message and mantle would never be allowed to pass, that there would be the fulfillment and the taking up of the prophet's mission. This was particularly promised of Elijah in the very last book of the Bible, but it was also promised to Moses. In other words, there there would be someone who would come along, there would be a new Moses, There would be a new Elijah. There would be a new Jeremiah. And perhaps this is someone they thought Jesus might be someone who's picking up the the mantle, picking up the message of one of these great titanic Old Testament prophets. And we can understand why. When Jesus spoke, he did speak as a prophet. As a matter of fact, he is our prophet as well as our priest and our king. They, They weren't so much wrong as they were not right. Because in Jesus, Elijah and Jeremiah and all the prophets are fulfilled. But he is not Elijah. He is not Jeremiah. He's not merely one of the prophets. I do think it had to be awkward for Jesus to turn to the twelve and say, okay, who are they thinking I am? What are you hearing? But it had to be much more awkward to hear the next question. But who do you say that I am? One of the central questions we have to ask is how we know a church when we see it. 
How do we know that this is actually a church? It says First Baptist Church out on the sign. That's a promising indication, but how do we actually know that the First Baptist Church is a church? There are all kinds of other buildings with the name church in this community. I don't just mean Fairdale, but Louisville, Kentucky. And I can tell you that based upon a biblical definition, they may have church on the stone sign in the front of the building, but according to Scripture, they are no church. The Reformers in the 16th century had to answer the question, where is the church? And and so did the early church fathers. They used marks in order to describe the church. They said, for a church actually, truly to be a church, certain irreducible marks have to be present. Martin Luther, the reformer, famously said that the, the, the first two marks are where the Word of God is rightly preached and where the sacraments, we would call them the ordinances, are rightly administered. If, if, if those two marks are present, then it just might be a church. If those two marks are absent, or either of them is absent, it, it's not a church. I want to suggest to you that in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 and following, we find three essential marks of the church. And these three marks answer the question, why has the First Baptist Church of Fairdale survived for a hundred years? The first mark of the church is truth. Jesus turned to his disciples and said, but who do you say that I am? And you'll notice that it's Simon Peter who answers, and he's identified as Simon Peter. Up to this point, Peter, uh, Simon, but now Simon Peter, soon Peter. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's absolutely astounding. Peter has just answered Christ's question, but who do you say that I am? By saying you are the Messiah, that's the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the consolation of Israel. You're the one for whom Israel has been waiting for generation after generation and century after century. You are the fulfillment of the law. You are the fulfillment of the prophets. You are the Messiah, God's anointed one. You are the king who will sit on David's throne eternally. Imagine saying that. And, and, and then Peter doesn't come full stop. He keeps going. Peter goes on to say, the Son of the living God. Now, in that particular way of saying, the Son of the living God, he was clearly saying, you are the Christ, and you're also God's own divine son. It's really interesting that up to this point in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is not revealed as the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. There are ways Matthew is helping us to get ready for this, even in the opening passages of Matthew, when he's showing us that even the circumstances of his birth, that these things occurred in order that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. And and thus we are beginning to see this is the fulfillment of the prophecy that the Messiah has come. And we're seeing it all come together. But here in this one crystallizing moment, Simon answers the question, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
It's interesting when you read the Gospels to understand that at this point, if you follow through the life and ministry of Jesus and all four of the Gospels, at roughly this point, so far as we can tell, there are only two different groups who absolutely know the answer to this question before the disciples. Two. One of them is a group of now dispersed shepherds outside Bethlehem. And they received a message from the angelic host, Fear not, for I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be for all peoples. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Those shepherds heard. And then who's the other group who knows who Jesus is? Read the Gospels carefully. It is the demons. The demons know who Jesus is. When he casts them out, when he shows his authority over them, they cry out. They know who Jesus is. But outside those Bethlehem shepherds 30 years back, and outside the demons, there has not been the confession of Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, until now. And it comes when Jesus turns to his own disciples and says, but who do you say that I am? The first mark of the church is truth, and it comes down to this. Where you find the truth of the gospel, where you find the truth of God's Word, where you find the faith, as the Scripture defines it, once for all delivered to the saints, you find a church. And the central truth upon which the church is established is the very truth that Peter confesses here, not just in his own voice, but for every Christian throughout all time and eternity. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Where you find the affirmation of the full deity and the full humanity of the messianic identity and of the divine sonship of Christ, there you find a church. Now, the truths that the church teaches and believes go far beyond that, as in that song we sang at the Confession of Faith, the Creed, put to music. We believe, we believe, we believe, we believe. We believe everything that's revealed in God's Word. But the most important truth that we know is that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, the second thing we need to note about this first mark of the church is that the truth is a revealed truth. Notice what Jesus says to Simon. He says, Blessed are you, Simon Son of John, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. What he says to Peter is, Peter, you got this exactly right. You you got it precisely right, but you didn't come up with this. This was revealed to you by my Father who is in heaven. That's an astounding claim for all of us. What we believe, we do not believe because we came up with this. What we believe, we do not believe merely because Christians have believed this through the centuries. What we believe, we believe because God revealed it to us in the apostles and in the Scripture. And God constantly, as the book of Hebrews begins, tells us that even as He has revealed Himself in many and various ways, He has now revealed Himself in the Son who is the exact representation 
of his nature. That's a humbling realization. That, 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 that's why the first mark of the church truth not only grounds the church in the truth of the gospel, the truth of Christ, that truth once for all delivered to the saints, but also humbles us by our realization that it is a, a knowledge that has been revealed to us. It has been given to us. One of my mentors was a man now long with the Lord. His name was Carl F.H. Henry. And uh, and, and to know Dr. Henry was to know he was kind of the consummate academic. He, he, he did not engage in small talk. His, his sentences were 30 and 40 words long. He talked like a German. He hyphenated terms. He made up words as he went along, and, uh, and they were massive. He was not a poet except at one point in his life. Dr. Henry was asked to to define God's self-revelation, and he did so in a way that I have never forgotten, and I don't believe I will ever forget. And he said this. He said, God's revelation is God's act of grace, whereby he forfeited his own personal privacy so that his sinful creatures might know him. Now, just ponder that for a moment. It's an act of God's grace whereby he loved us so much that he forfeited his own personal privacy to reveal himself to creatures who had sinned against him. That's the most amazing thing. That's like a verse that would be parallel to John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him might not perish but have everlasting life. It's also God's grace, and it's because of his love for us that he gave us his word, and he reveals his truth to us. And that's what Jesus said to Peter, blessed are you, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood do not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. We are the people, as Christ church, who have the most unspeakable privilege of receiving the revelation of God and believing it and preaching it and teaching it and taking it and telling it. Because we didn't come up with it. It is that which has been revealed to us by the Father. Truth is absolutely non-negotiable. Where you find a church that is, is weak in truth, you find a church that is, that is failing actually to be a church. And, and that's the problem. Uh, all around us are churches that have abandoned the gospel. Or, or let's put it this way. There are churches or there are places where churches once were, where churches no longer are even though they still own the building and someone is still inside and they still have music and and all the rest, if they have abandoned the truth, then they are no longer a church. What explains the persistence, the existence of the First Baptist Church of Fairdale? Certainly you can say, well, it's human persistence, it's, it's human effort. But when you think about it, we're humbled by the realization that that's not a sufficient explanation. The first explanation is because God honors His truth. And where he is, His church is established, it is established in truth. And that's His first mark. The second mark is power. The first mark of the church is truth. The second is power. Jesus says to Peter, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's incredibly good news. Jesus renames Simon as Peter, the rock. And he says, upon this rock I will build my church. Now, does he mean he's established the church upon Peter? That's actually what the Roman Catholic Church officially believes, 
And then Peter became the first pope, and there's a succession of popes all the way to today. That's quite problematic, especially because Peter, if he's the rock, well, in just a few verses, Jesus turns to the rock and says, get thee behind me, Satan. That's a problem. If Peter's the rock, Peter's not the rock. Peter's confession of faith is the rock. The confession that Jesus Christ is Lord, that's the rock. Upon this rock, and it's upon himself. This is made very clear later in the New Testament where we are told that Jesus is the foundation. We're also told that he is the chief cornerstone. The church is built on the foundation of Christ. He's the rock. Upon this rock I will build my church. Notice the personal possession, my church. And then the promise, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now you say, well, now that explains why the First Baptist Church of Fairdale has existed for 100 years. That explains why a church begun in 1916 is still here in 2016. But here we have to be very careful because this is not a promise merely to a congregation. This is a promise to Christ's church. That points to a bigger reality. Those of you who this morning are members of the First Baptist Church of Fairdale rightly understand that that membership is extremely important. We as Baptists understand the church is the gathered, covenanted community, and thus the distinction between those who are members of the church and those who are not members of the church is a distinction of tremendous magnitude. Because those who are members of the church, having made their personal profession of faith in Christ and having followed Christ in obedience and baptism and having joined willingly in the covenant of this congregation, they're under the mutual discipleship and mutual discipline of the church and its preaching and its teaching and its ministry. They are part of the covenanted community, as the New Testament says, being built up as living stones into the living church. The members are glad when non-members come, but there's something very important about membership in a church that Baptists surely understand. But Baptists tend to come short of a bigger understanding, and that is that we are actually members not just of this church, but of the church. And when we're members of the church, then we're members of a church that includes prophets and patriarchs and apostles and martyrs and all throughout Christian history. We're part of the same church that Peter was here made a part of. We are a a part of the same church that the disciples served and led as the church is also built up on the foundation laid by the apostles. We, we, We rightly recite what's called the Apostles' Creed because we stand in the same church and we want to believe the same things that the apostles believed and that the apostles taught. And then we follow through Christian history, understanding that anyone who was actually a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ became a part of the church. Now, that's humbling because even as we are so happy to celebrate the 100th anniversary of this congregation, there are a lot of congregations that didn't last. Let me give you one of the most haunting realizations in this. When you look at the New Testament, you look at the names of the, of the churches to whom so many of the letters of the Apostle Paul are addressed, you come to understand that within a matter of just a relatively short amount of time, those churches existed no more. 
Or even if you go now to much of Asia Minor, what's now Turkey, and, and you go to some of these places, you can go to Ephesus, you can go to other places. In many of those places, you will find no Christian church whatsoever in the land of Muslim dominance. So does that mean that the gates of hell will prevail? No. It does mean that as we sing in that song, Amazing Grace, through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come. It does mean that there are congregations that once were thriving that now no longer exist. But here's the reality. Christ's church has always been preserved. And Christ's church will always be preserved. You know, one of the things that we have to keep in mind is that when we see certain expressions in Scripture, we ought not to jump to the triumphant kinds of assumptions that come naturally to us. When we see here the gates of hell shall not prevail, our first thought is, well then, we can't lose. We can't lose ground. Nothing can come up against us. But there have been Christians who have paid for their testimony with their lives. There, there have been Christians who have lost everything for the cause of Christ. There are Christians right now in, in Russia being expelled merely for preaching the gospel. The headline yesterday in the New York Times was of the Communist Party in China extending its crackdown on Christian churches. The gates of hell should not prevail. Does that mean then that those things can't happen? No, it doesn't mean that because they do. What it means is this. Hell may think it's prevailing, but it's not really. The, the, the church exists under persecution and through persecution and through many different periods of turmoil and stress and outright opposition simply because Jesus Christ is Lord and He will preserve His church. There's a technical definition here that's important. When we read the gates of hell shall not prevail, we just, it's the gates of Hades. Without going into too much of the language, anyone in the first century in Judaism would have known exactly what this means. It means the gates that separate life and death. And this is what's true for the Christian, for every single Christian. The gates of hell shall not prevail. We are the only people on earth who can die safely because we die in Christ. The gates of hell shall not prevail because Christ's church can't be extinguished even by death. Justin Martyr, one of the early leaders of the church, and he's named Justin Martyr because he had to lead his congregation into martyrdom. As they were being led into their deaths, he famously said to his congregation, who were about to be slaughtered, he said, remember, they can kill us, but they can't hurt us. That's the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But when we say the gates of hell shall not prevail, we sometimes mean that, that Christ promises that His church prevails in ways that are invisible until we get to see them. I've been walking around with something for about two decades that I couldn't talk about, and I'm still not sure exactly how I can talk about it, but I'm going to anyway. Uh, I was sworn to secrecy for the lifetime of the person who came to see me, and she has now been dead for 15 years, so I think I can talk. Um, I have been involved in religious liberty issues and other things on the national and international level, and 
I had been uh, involved with Dr. Billy Graham. He uh, spoke at my inauguration as president of Southern Seminary. We established the only school that has his name on it at Southern Seminary, the Billy Graham School of Missions Evangelism, and then church growth. And I uh, ended up heading one of his crusades, and it was through mutual connections I received a phone call. And it's one of those phone calls that makes you think you are an actor in a James Bond movie. It was a phone call, and the, the, the person calling me said, you know who I am, but we never met before, and gave me the name, and I assure you I knew who he was, a very high-ranking former diplomat in the United States government. And uh, he said, there is a woman who needs to see you, and uh, I want to make sure that you will see her. All right? Well, given who was calling me, I wasn't about to say no. So I said, yes, I'll be, I'll be glad to see her. I'll make it a priority. And he said, well, good, because she's coming tomorrow. And uh, he said, uh, I'm not going to tell you who she is except to tell you when she tells you who she is on the full faith and credit of the United States State Department, that is who she is. All right. That's hard to sleep the night before you're going to meet somebody introduced to you in those terms. The next morning, a very elderly Chinese lady came into my office accompanied by an entourage. It turned out that she was the first wife of Deng Xiaoping, the communist dictator of China. And when the Cultural Revolution took place, even earlier, the long march of the communist revolution in China, when Mao made atheism the absolute requirement of all communist leadership, Deng Xiaoping put this Christian wife away, which in Chinese society was to basically marginalize her forever. But the Lord had other plans for her, and she ended up in another country. And she came to see me on behalf of Christians in China who needed help and a particular kind of help that we could give, and by God's grace we were able to give it and establish some relationships. But what I want to tell you about is a story she told me. And the only explanation I have for this story is that the gates of hell shall not prevail. This elderly Chinese woman looked at me and she said, you know, the enemies of the gospel are powerful but stupid. Evidently, she didn't think I got it because she said, the enemies of the gospel are very powerful but stupid. Her own father had been a pastor, and she explained that when the communists took over the countryside, they came to the villages, and in order to humiliate Christian pastors, they, they burned their churches, and they, they took away the Bibles, and they, they put the pastors in the most humiliating position they could imagine in order to show their, their hatred of the gospel and of Christianity. This lady looked at me and she said, as I said, the enemies of the gospel are powerful, but they are stupid. They made all the preachers refuse collectors. And she said, so in order to kill the gospel, the Chinese government, under the leadership of the Communist Party, required my father and all the other pastors to knock on every door every day in order to collect the trash. Do you know that the gospel expanded more 
with preachers being required to knock on every door every day because they got to talk of Christ. The Communist Party tried to put the church out of business, but do you know now that there are more Christians in China than in any other nation on earth? It's because the gates of hell shall not prevail. And there have been Christians who've been martyred in China, including Southern Baptist missionaries. But the gates of hell shall not prevail. That's the power the church lives in. And and that means that there may well come a day when the First Baptist Church of Fairdale will not exist. That day might be here. There are churches just as wonderful and just as healthy as I look at the growth in this church as yours. But there are churches as congregations that no longer exist, but the gates of hell shall not prevail. Now, let me tell you what that means. That means that everything that has been invested in this church and this gospel ministry for 100 years means more than what you can see right now. It's because there are people in heaven with Christ for eternity who will be present with us at the marriage supper of the Lamb who heard about Jesus through this church over the last 100 years. And even if this building were to disappear, and even if this church were by necessity to disband, if communist authorities came in and scattered this church, the gates of hell will not prevail. The third mark of the church is authority. In verse 19, Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. There is a unique authority given to the church, and wherever you find the church, you find the church living out this authority. The first way this authority of binding and loosing is lived out is through the preaching of the Word. That's why this is such an important part of Christian worship. That's why we don't talk about worship as what we do before we hear the preaching of God's Word. That's why everything that's done before the preaching of God's Word is to get God's people ready to hear God's Word, because this is where we are bound and this is where we are loosed. That language is very easy to understand. Being bound means we're bound by every word of Scripture. Binding is easy. We are bound by everything revealed in God's Word. We are accountable to every single word of the Scripture. We're bound by it, and it binds us. There's law and and statute and command. We are bound by every word of Scripture. We're we're bound by the Ten Commandments. We're, We're bound by the Sermon on the Mount. And we're also loosed. Go ye therefore into all the world and preach the gospel. Make, make disciples of all the nations. We're, we're loosed. We are commissioned. We are commanded. We are authorized. We are we're given a mandate in Genesis 1.28 to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. The Word of God binds us and the Word of God looses us. Now, in the life of a congregation, the first way this happens is by preaching, and, and, and then the second way it happens is by the application of God's Word, and that, that's what should happen in all the other ministries of the church, where what is preached in the pulpit is reinforced and amplified and, and applied in terms of everyday life. That's, that's what counseling should, should be in a church. It should be preaching applied. But there's another way in a gospel-ordered church that this binding and loosing takes place. And, and, and this is in the church discipline that is exercised by the congregation, where the, the people of God say, we are bound together in covenant, mutually in submission to the Word of God, and thus we discipline one another. We live under the discipline of Christ by the Holy Spirit in the church, such that when one of us strays, when one of us 
sins, we remind all of us that we are bound to God's Word, even as we are bound to each other. There are three marks of the church right here in Matthew chapter 16. You could look at the rest of the New Testament, and arguably there are other marks as well. But I want to answer the question, why the First Baptist Church of Fairdale 100 years after it was established? But I want to answer the even bigger question. Why has Christ's church existed and survived and prevailed through two millennia and more, and will eternally, and it's because the gates of hell shall not prevail. How do you know the church when you see it is established in truth? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, that revealed truth. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, Simon, son of John, but my Father who is in heaven. The second mark, power. Not an earthly power. When the church has sought earthly power, it has often been humbled or humiliated. We have a certain influence but no real earthly power. But there's an eternal power that is given to the church, the power to die and know that death is not the end. And the power then, as the Scripture says, to be faithful unto death. And then authority. The authority that is vested in the church, not in a person, not in a pope, a responsibility and authority that is invested in the congregation. And where you find a true church, you find truth and power and authority as these essential marks. Of course, embedded in this is the gospel of Christ. When Peter answered the question with the words, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, this is the same Peter who in John chapter 6 would answer Jesus when Jesus says, do you also want to go away? And Peter says, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we've also come to know that you are the Christ, the Holy One of God. You have the words of eternal life. When Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, he was making very clear that Christ is the Messiah. We know that He is not only Messiah, but Savior. We know that Jesus, even then, as He was to say to Peter in just a few moments in Scripture, He was headed for a cross, and on that cross He would die as our substitute. He would pay the penalty for our sins. He would be not only the king who would sit on David's throne, He would be the Savior, the suffering servant by whose wounds we would be healed. We come to know that He was raised by the power of God on the third day. And thus we come to know that salvation is declared in His name, such that if anyone believes that Jesus Christ is Lord and makes that the confession of their lips, they confess Jesus Christ is Lord and believes in their heart that God has raised Him from the dead, they shall be saved. So it's one thing to hear the conversation between Jesus and His disciples and come to understand there are three marks of the church. It's another thing to come to understand whether or not you're actually a Christian. If you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and repented of your sins, if you come to know salvation which is by Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone, then you're not only a candidate to be a member of this church, you are a member of Christ's church. And against that church, the gates of hell, 
shall not prevail. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful for all you've given us in your word. We pray that your word will take residence in our heart, that the Holy Spirit will conform us to the image of Christ, and we pray this in his name. Amen.